Hello and welcome to Bird Curious, a podcast in which we talk about birds. Each episode we talk about a particular species, what makes it special and how to spot one. And we share thoughts on birdwatching tips as well as exploring some of the science and history of birds and birders from the UK and around the world. We're two sisters in lockdown London, so for the time being we're focusing on birds that it's still relatively possible to see during lockdown, even if you live in a city. And this week we'll be looking at a striking bird with an iconic lifestyle, the great spotted woodpecker. I'm Joe Sarche. And I'm Penny Sarche. We're recording our second episode under the UK's extended coronavirus lockdown measures, but this is a very active time of year for birds, even in the relatively built-up areas of London where we both live. So, have you seen any good birds lately, Joe? Well, funnily enough, um, since recording our last podcast, I saw a goldfinch on the... Oh, really? Yeah, on a street tree for the first time from our, from our window of where we live, so that was amazing. And um, I've heard some kind of reports of people who listened to the podcast and saw goldfinches shortly after. So I like to think it had a sort of summoning effect. Magic. Yeah, goldfinches assemble. <laughs> Love it. The other thing I've noticed I've ne- that I've never seen in my area before is house sparrows. I saw a lot of house sparrows on a street near me uh, chirping early in the morning. And it's funny, I think in London, I've only really ever seen them at like London Zoo, where they used to really go after the feed. Um, kind of see them a lot in the country, but it feels like they may be coming back. Yeah, I was, so I was going to mention house sparrows because, um, and, and we'll do a, a whole episode on these because yeah. it's really interesting. But um, they returned to my area maybe a few years ago, and they've since taken up sort of residence, really, like a large group of them because they're very social on the corner opposite my flat. And probably my recent birding highlight was I was just sitting on the threshold of my little patio and something um, just moved in the corner of my eye and I realised that a sparrow was um, feeding from, I have this tiny little bird feeder and living in London I just thought um, the chances are, I could see something was eating it, but the chances are it's one of a variety of rodent species that are abundant in in, uh, Mm. London. Um, But to actually realise it's at least some of the time sparrows are feeding off of that that I was really thrilled that made me very happy oh you better clean it following up on our chat from last time I know now now I've got responsibility got to look after the birds Uh, but I have to say also uh, this spring we're kind of coming to the end of it now but I've seen and heard far more woodpeckers than I normally do um great spotted particularly I think thanks to being able to go for a morning walk instead of commuting and that's been great because that distinctive rattle or drumming that you hear from a great spotted woodpecker it just never fails to cheer me up good job it's our bird of the show then so Joe. Do you want to give us a quick profile of the great spotted woodpecker? Yeah, it's starling size and very striking with black and white plumage. I've, I've always thought they look very smart, almost like they're in tuxedos or evening wear or something. Yeah, quite glam, I think, and they're quite immaculate looking, those, those white spots. Yeah. Um, they just look so like pristinely painted on. Yeah, and they've got these kind of bold black and white patterns. I've always thought it's a bit kind of art deco, like you could see them being in like, I don't know, like a 1920s New York apartment building or something. <laughs> Unlike with some bird species, it's quite easy to tell the males, females and juveniles apart once you know it's basically about where the red is on them. 
They all have a reddish flash underneath the tail, but the male also has a red patch on the back of his head, and the female basically looks the same as the male but without this patch, so it's quite a kind of telltale um, sign to tell between the genders. The juveniles have red crowns, so kind of lots of red on the top of their head. Um, I wondered if it's maybe so they can be seen in dark nests, like in trees and things, because it kind of makes them... Oh, I wonder. Yeah, I love the red on their heads. They're really... Because they tend to be quite scruffy because yeah. their feathers are all new and they've just fledged the nest. And yeah. they look so punky with their red, red fluffed up heads. It's um, It's been a while since I've seen one, actually. Yeah. Like many other species of woodpecker, the great spotted eats insects, particularly grubs hidden in rotting or dead trees. I've really enjoyed them picking apart dead tree branches with a sort of ruthless efficiency um, in the search for food their beaks look so sharp and perfectly designed for just chiseling through and demolishing rotten old wood yeah because they make that rattling sort of hammering sound through trees but that's not from feeding is it no you're right so the distinctive drumming sound these birds are known for is made by repeatedly hammering their beaks against dead wood and that's not a feeding behavior It's mostly a form of communication, often by males marking out their territory, or um, it turns out also between couples, which is quite sweet, and both sexes do it. But because of the territorial behaviour, you're most likely to hear this kind of hammering in the UK between January and April, and I managed to record some on a morning walk last month. And I also got this clip. Oh, that's really great. It must have been, it's quite a hard sound to catch because it's often quite unpredictable, isn't it? You just suddenly hear it crop up and then it goes away again. Yeah, I must admit, I, I've, I've been trying to get this one uh, for maybe a month or two now. <laughs> and, um, and most of the recordings are, you can mostly just hear me going over the grass trying to get closer <laughs> <laughs> as I hear one and start stalking one. So I'm glad it finally paid off. Maybe we can have a sort of outtakes at the end of the show where we listen to you padding across the grass. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I was really thrilled to get a recording of, of the hammering. I just loved the sound of it. It carries uh, pretty far in woodland and it can be so tantalising when you hear one but you just can't find it. Before I'd seen my first one, I remember spending hours with Dad trying um, to follow the hammering sounds early mornings in Regent's Park and Hampstead Heath, just traipsing all over the place and staring at the tops of trees. So really fond memories for me there. Yeah, and it, it does feel quite hard to sort of like locate based on the sound compared to some bird songs it's quite a mysterious sound and you sometimes kind of hear it under a lot of other bird song and it gives you the shivers in a good way but um doesn't it hurt their heads Fortunately, the woodpecker family have a range of clever adaptations to prevent this kind of furious hammering from doing them any harm. So their beaks are very hard and don't bend or break. And their skull bones are spongy with holes in them and that helps stop the vibrations from getting to the brain. Uh, there have been lots of studies um, more generally on different types of woodpecker and there's loads of uh, lots of other clever adaptations too to sort of absorb shocks and stop uh, the vibrations from getting into important brain tissue it's all very clever wow they make another sound don't they sometimes when they kind of fly by and stuff yeah i had a look through some bird books yesterday to see um how (laughs) how everyone describes it my favorite one was um it's a loud chack and it is like a chack isn't it it's like um well i'm not going to do the impression like yeah there you go (laughs) but louder and it always sounds a bit alarmed or aggressive even it's kind of quite a sudden sound when we were growing up we we saw this kind of family of woodpeckers quite a lot and the um mum or the kind of female was 
very possessive, wasn't she? When she came in, she wanted all the any other birds to get away from the feeder, especially when she had young around. And so I, I feel like I always associate that noise with her being like, get out of my way. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true, actually. I have to say, um, now, when I th- uh, more often when I think I've heard that sound, it quite often tends to be the call of a ring-necked parakeet because we've got loads of those around here. Mm. But that's a bit ironic, really, because those invasive parakeets might actually be a threat to the woodpeckers. Oh, really? What, in, like, competing for food? or? Yeah, so it's still pretty unclear how much or how bad of an effect the boom in parakeet numbers is having on native British birds. Um, it's quite common that when there is a new invasive of species everyone just kind of assumes that it's bad Mm. and it's very possible that it might be but it the the data is still quite preliminary Mm. but one concern is that the parakeets nest in tree holes uh, which woodpeckers also do Mm. so potentially there's this competition for woodland real estate that might put woodpeckers at risk We don't really have clear evidence on that yet, but we do know that parakeets nest particularly early in the season. So it's possible that maybe they like they find it quite easy to grab all the best spots and that that might cause a bit of trouble for the woodpecker. Yeah, I imagine they in a kind of fight. Parakeets are very they're big bruises, aren't they? They're a lot bigger than woodpeckers. And they've got lots of friends as well. They're sociable. (laughs) (laughs) So they can like, (laughs) I'll meet you outside, but I'll bring all my gang. (laughs) Exactly. As for spotting a great spotted, these birds do feed in gardens, as we've mentioned. And from uh, our own experience, they I, they always seem to be particularly uh, fond of peanuts, don't they? Yeah, the peanut feeders they seem to like and kind of peck at it as if it's a tree. Really cute to watch. But if you want to see one out and about, it's a good idea to get out to a wood in early spring and try to follow that sound of the drumming. You can also spot the birds if they happen to fly past or leave a tree when you're kind of scouring for the source of the sound. By um, They have a really distinctive sort of deep undulating flight. So um, up and down and up and down. And it, it almost looks a bit too slow to even work. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite amazing. They just hang in the air. Yeah, it looks like they kind of almost start falling at the end, doesn't it? And then they kind of swoop back up. Mm. It's worth knowing as well that there is another species of black and white woodpecker in the UK. And the lesser spotted. Um, these are much rarer. There's only about a thousand, two thousand pairs of them in the UK, whereas there's a hundred and forty thousand breeding pairs of great spotted woodpeckers in the UK. So if you see a, a black and white woodpecker, it's a lot more likely to be a great spotted. Um, and as a kid, I always thought that's what their name referred to because <laughs> because I've never seen a lesser spotted, and you so I thought it meant it was spotted less regularly. <laughs> well, it's also true. <laughs> um, but it's actually because of their size; they're they're um, considerably smaller. So great spotted woodpeckers are twenty two to twenty three centimeters long, whereas lesser spotted are fourteen to fifteen. Um, but I still haven't ever seen one. You, you have, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, I've been quite lucky, actually. I think I've seen a lesser spotted twice. The first time I can't actually really remember. I think it was probably Hampstead Heath at some point a very long time ago. The second time was also quite a while ago when I was in mum and dad's house. I looked out the window onto the street and there was just one in the silver birch right outside. A lesser spotted? Yeah, it was so surprising. And oh, this is just, just on yeah. a street tree. Couldn't believe my luck. Yeah. Never seen one there before or since. Wow. And the thing that really strikes you is just how small they are. It, it's really like mm. a sparrow that's been painted up like a woodpecker. It's just incredible <laughs> when you're used to seeing the other one. So that was, that was wonderful. That's one of my best sightings, best lucky sightings ever. 
Yeah, it's funny that often the best sightings are like, you know, you'll go on a long walk and you'd be delighted if you saw a less spotted woodpecker and then sometimes they just come to you. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so you've got the lesser spotted, the great spotted, and the, did you know there is actually a middle spotted woodpecker, Penny? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> when I first read about it, I thought it was like a bird watcher joke. But they do actually exist. They can be seen just across the channel in France, but you don't get them in the UK. And apparently in the spring and summer, the RSPB often gets messages from people who think they've seen one. In fact, they've actually just seen young great spotted woodpeckers. As we discussed earlier, these have red on top of their heads. And so do middle spotted woodpeckers. Um, It's worth searching for online, though. They look really similar. You can see how people get confused. Mm. Back to the woodpeckers you can actually see in the UK. There is, of course, um, the other one. The um, Like my friend the other day was out and she, she messaged her husband saying, I've seen a bird that looks like a woodpecker, but it's green. And he, was, he replied being like, that would be a green woodpecker. <laughs> the green woodpecker is just exactly what it sounds like, really, doesn't it? It's got like a, a red head. It looks quite similar to the other woodpeckers, but it's very, very green. Um, and um, it's the largest of the woodpeckers. So very exciting when you see it um, flying around. It feels like you see it more often in quite open spaces compared to the others. Yeah, they've got this um, loud laughing call. It almost yeah. sounds like a cackle. But I, I really like the green. It's it's a bit of a rebel. They have a real taste for ants. Uh, so like you say, you're much more likely actually really to see them in open spaces, quite often on grass or lawns, digging up ant nests. Um, so they're, they're a bit of a departure from what you would normally expect uh, to see a woodpecker doing. Yeah. And I have to say, I think I think the green woodpecker might be my favourite. They're, really? they're big and they're so striking. Mm. They've got those black markings around the eyes, the red on the mm. head, the lovely green. Yeah. I was really lucky once to watch a courting pair sort of dancing uh, one mm. morning, uh, again on Hampstead Heath, I think. And it felt like such a special moment watching them sort of bobbing their heads and um, in mm. synchrony. And I, I've just had a soft spot for them ever since. Mm. What about you? Do you have a favourite woodpecker? It's a tricky one. Like I see green woodpeckers a lot um, less often, and when you do, they're they're quite big and they're quite kind of comical, quite outlandish looking. I do enjoy seeing them, but I'm always delighted to see a great spotted woodpecker too. Yeah, it's a it's a great family. Yeah, the woodpeckers are they're very striking and characterful birds, and people are very interested in them in Roman times. It was an important bird in augury, so it's thought that it could give a sign of what will happen in the future. Ah, and um, and also a woodpecker is said to have helped the wolf care for Romulus and Remus. You know the mythological founders of Rome. Oh, how nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly how, but there's a ribbon. Yeah, how helpful is a woodpecker? <laughs> I mean, a wolf, though. I mean, it's it's not the best the best start in life, is it? But um, there's a Rubens painting of Romulus and Remus, and it's got three great spotted woodpeckers in it, which you don't tend to see in nature much, do you? Three together, like none of them juveniles. Oh, well, I'm going to have to look that up. I've, I've never seen that. Um, yeah. So what did they mean in augury? If a Roman saw one early one spring morning, what would they think it meant? Basically, you know, depending on the direction it's flying, but perhaps that would mean that they would uh, win a battle or something like that, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. You know, your classic yeah. augury type situation. Right. <laughs> Worth bearing in mind then the next time I see one. <laughs> Now it's time for our Birder Hall of Fame, a collection of remarkable bird lovers throughout history and from around the world. Who are you introducing us to this time, Jo? So, Penny, if I told you I wanted to discuss a modern-day author and bird enthusiast from North America, who would you think I was talking about? 
Probably Jonathan Franzen. Uh-huh. Yes, um, I thought you'd say that. Because American novelist Jonathan Franzen is famously um, a very keen bird watcher. But there's actually another really great, renowned, well-known author with a love for birds, um, and I, which I only found out about recently, and it's Margaret Atwood. Oh, really? Yeah, so I slightly, I was being slightly cheeky because she's Canadian, but you know, that counts as North American. Oh, yeah, you did throw me a little bit there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's really into birds. And this isn't a sort of she owns a pair of binoculars type thing. Like, she's properly into birds. She, when she was growing up in Canada, she had loads of contact with nature, um, her father being an entomologist. And she began bird watching as a child from around the age of six. These days, she has a house on Peely Island. Have you heard of that? No, no. Where's that? It's on Lake Erie in Canada, and it's a really important stopover for migrating birds. And she helped establish a bird observatory there, as well as a birding and a literature festival called Spring Song. Well, I had no idea. Um, Do birds crop up much in her work? I'm just trying to think back. Yeah, well, she's actually written some bird-themed poems, which can be seen online. The Audubon website's published um, some of them. They're not necessarily what you'd expect from your standard nature poem, you know, perhaps like a kind of beautiful ode to nature or something. Um, They're actually quite dark, um, mainly about finding dead birds. And, you know, there is a kind of beauty in them still, but it's... She seems fascinated by the interaction, often a negative one, between birds and humans. Hmm, interesting. She's also, interestingly, written a graphic novel series, Angel Cat Bird, and the title character is a blend of bird, cat and human, who, as you'd expect, struggles with an identity crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And peppered throughout are facts and statistics related to a Nature Canada campaign that encourages cat owners to not let their cats roam unsupervised outside for their own safety, but also to protect birds, um, because it's estimated that about 200 million birds in Canada are killed every year by cats. So that's the kind of, um, I think, part of the impetus of her doing this graphic novel series, Angel Cat Bird. Interesting. That's maybe a, a subject for another show, but I know that North America are much more switched on to this idea of having indoor cats instead of outdoor cats because of the effect on birds. It's, it's not really something that people do as much here in the UK. Mm. So does her writing about birds generally tend to have uh, that sort of conservation or even slightly campaign-y bent? Yeah, well, harking back to our discussion of uh, the woodpecker earlier and how it was important in augury in Roman times, she's really interested in and has written about how birds were used in augury in ancient times and have often been seen throughout history as symbols of our own human fate and then how this relates to the modern day and the fact that if birds are dying, she believes that this reflects problems with the world that will ultimately cause human deaths too. So she's written quite um, articles and things that are quite kind of kind of intellectual and poetic, but also with a, quite a conservation bent about this kind of idea. And she's clearly very concerned about the destruction of ecosystems. But she does also see some hope because she's seen the success that conservation products can have. And it's quite comforting to know that a writer known for her sort of very intelligent dystopian fiction does think there can be some room for hope and that she takes us from the bird world oh great addition to our bird hall of fame then thank you next up it's time to talk birding essentials penny this week we're talking about patch birding that's right do you do you know what that is joe be honest 
No. <laughs> I have to admit, I thought I did, but... No. Right, okay. So, patch birding. This is a practice that can be very rewarding for beginners and advanced birders alike. And I um, wanted to talk about it today because it's still possible under the UK's current social distancing rules. The idea here is that you find an area that it doesn't have to be particularly big. It, it should ideally be quite close to you. And it's an area that you walk very regularly, uh, daily if you're lucky, so that you fully get to really know the habitats in it and all of the species that live there and the, the way they behave. And this is kind of what I thought it might be, actually. I think the, um, the name isn't too misleading. I don't know if it fully counts, but just going on a jog, I started to notice like a nut hatch would be on a specific tree if I arrived at a certain time, and then there'd be a song thrush on the other side of the park. And you know, you kind of notice these kind of things. Yeah. But I think, especially during lockdown, we can end up walking over the same kind of areas again and again. It can be a bit repetitive and uninteresting doing kind of always patrolling the same space again and again, can't it? Isn't that a risk? Yeah, yeah, it can. And so it doesn't quite have the same excitement of going on a like a special trip somewhere to see something in particular that you, you rarely see. Um, but I, that's the point, really. And so in this way, I sort of see patch birding as a bit like uh, practicing an instrument at home or a kind of your week in, week out exercise routine. It's like a discipline that really hopes your skills and makes you a better birder for when you have the high performance situations so for example if you're just getting started with bird watching learning to recognize all the species in your patch is a great way to begin you you start with that handful that you see so you learn what they look like and then like you were saying on your daily run it doesn't take long before you've sort of picked up which habitats they prefer what sort of time they're active what they sound like you just start to associate that naturally what they eat what season you're more likely to see them so that kind of really starts building your skills of sort of understanding the birds and how different birds behave which you can then sort of transfer Mm. you also get used to some of the more instinctive elements of bird watching so just kind of knowing when to stop walking and and just listen for a while because you might have heard something or training your eyes to spot movement in the tops of trees and so if you know a patch really well and go there every day you're gonna you're more likely to notice when something's a bit different or when it's worth kind of stopping and and paying attention so it's it's great practice in that sense yeah I was running um a route that I normally run I heard this kind of really odd noise coming from a bush and I just kind of stopped and looked and it was a kind of robin sized thing I don't think I would have stopped if it wasn't for that sound and it was a black cat oh lovely just right in a bush right by me while I was running but it was that sort of knowing the sounds I normally hear in the park and thinking, oh, this is a quite a different sound. I wouldn't have known that call was a black cup, but kind of seeing that movement, hearing that sound in an area I'm used to really kind of stood out. Yeah, and I, I find really knowing an area, it also sort of builds over time. I now know to look for red wings on the common every winter. And then when they start massing to feed before their spring migration away from the UK, I, I feel kind of melancholy, but you know that it means spring's coming. And, and you kind of get that tied into the seasons and the birds that are coming and going. Mm. And, and so that that's really nice in a sort of connection to your own environment sort of a way. Yeah. And and like you were saying, really, when you know an area inside out, you, you really revel in the surprises. So mm. um, in January, I was coming back quite late at night past a, a bit where I regularly walk. And I heard a dorney owl um, yeah. for, for the first time from there. And yeah. I was so thrilled because yeah. it, it wasn't just like, oh, great, it's lovely to hear an owl. It's like, it's an owl on my patch, which is brilliant. Yeah. And just lastly on patch birding, I would say that now is a really good time to be doing it. 
due to the coronavirus, I can't currently get out to any particularly interesting reserves or birdwatching mm. sites. So instead, I'm sort of really having to take pleasure in noticing daily changes and features on, on my local morning walk. Um, yeah. The other day, we finally got some rain this week. And so the next day, the bird song was amazing. And just noticing those sort of daily changes. Oh, uh, yeah. It's almost like, you know, like you get these trends for like slow cooking and slow travel. It's kind of like slow bird watching, like really appreciating the small things and not kind of being in it for all the flashy, rare spots necessarily. Yeah, I think that's a good description of it. Finally, it's time for Bird Spurious, a dose of trivia with a tenuous link to birding. Penny, have you seen Citizen Kane? Oh, I'm really embarrassed to say that I haven't. It's one of those films that people always go on about and being quite stubborn that generally <laughs> tends to put me off. Yeah, no, it, me neither. I feel like it's maybe the sort of thing I should finally be getting around to doing during lockdown to kind of get the cultural references, but uh, no, not got around to it, um, not yet. But one of my favourite film facts does relate to it. And I don't think you have to have seen it to appreciate it because it's one of my favourite there's a scene where there are people hanging out in a sort of swampy encampment and it looks like um you can kind of you can find this scene and have a, have a watch but it looks like some big birds are flying by in the background but if you look closer they actually look like they're pterodactyls <laughs> so it's actually kind of citizen kane is basically a dinosaur film <laughs> Now I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. I think this should make us want to see it, if nothing else. And it's apparently because they borrowed back projection footage from another film, um, probably from a King Kong movie. How funny. And did no one realise when they were doing it, I guess? Maybe they just thought it's so... To be honest, it's so quick that you just... um, And you're not focusing, because it's in the background. It's only if someone points it out. And, you know, these days we can kind of watch things back and watch it over and over. But I think if you're in the cinema, you'd be concentrating on the on the foreground action so you just wouldn't notice i don't that's think. a brilliant fact i'm going to be really nitpicky though pterodactyls weren't actually a type of dinosaur oh no okay i, oh, I always do that yeah but what we do know is that the birds today really are dinosaurs they they are directly related so actually if they'd had real birds in the background it would have been a dinosaur film but now it's definitely not a dinosaur <laughs> yeah it's a pterodactyl film specifically <laughs> what's it what's a pterodactyl what group is it then so pterodactyls actually, uh, uh, while they lived at around the same time as the dinosaurs, and they were reptiles um, that are now extinct, they're actually pterosaurs, they're not dinosaurs, so a, a different sort uh, of a, a group. Yeah, so Citizen Kane's actually a pterosaur film. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure I'm going to be checking out Citizen Kane during lockdown, but I'm definitely going to be looking for that particular scene online. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Bird Curious. The show is written and produced by us, Penny and Joe Sarchet. Our music is by Chris Warrington, our sound production by James Telford, and our artwork by Elizabeth Querstret. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BirdCuriousPod. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of in the show, and we'd love to see pictures of any woodpeckers or anything else interesting you've seen on your patch lately. You can also tweet us to suggest bird trivia for our Bird Spurious segment. And please do recommend the show to any friends you think might also be bird curious. You can subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.